Hello, and welcome to the Without Exception podcast. My name is Josiah Ott, and on this podcast, I seek to share practical content for everyday Christians. My hope is that I can help you live out your faith each day without exception. Thanks for tuning in, whether this is your first time or you've been listening with me since the beginning of the podcast, I appreciate you listening. Today is episode number 16, and I'm going to be sharing that sometimes desperate times do not call for desperate measures. Now, this podcast is actually based off of a message that I had to create for my preaching class that I am just about to finish, so I'm excited that I'll actually be able to share it with somebody, don't have the opportunity to share it in person anywhere right now. So you guys get to get a little insight into uh, something, some stuff I learned, hopefully, and I hope it is a blessing to you. So have you ever been in a difficult situation where you had to get creative in order to get out of it? Sometimes we face things like this, and you leave with a story that's hilarious, and then we're proud to share the story, but sometimes you don't handle it very well, and you would never share the story of what happened. Well, there was a time in my life that I would like to share with you where a desperate time caused me to go to very desperate measures. When I was a student at Blue Ridge Bible College, I was getting ready to travel back down, and it was probably an eight or nine hour drive, including stops for me. So sometimes you try to break up the drive by stopping you know, partway down. And I had a friend that lived roughly two hours away, and so we were planning to stop at his house one night, and then you know it would shorten the drive up. So then instead of you know a nine hour drive, it would be seven and nine or six and eight, however it would work. And we decided to head down. Now it was wintertime in Pennsylvania, which means the weather sometimes can be a little bit uh, bad or unpredictable. And we were getting ready to leave and we looked at the forecast and it's like, you know, there might be freezing rain. There might be like no visibility, all these things. And we're you know, thinking, well, hey, you know, what could possibly go wrong? And, you know, and we decided uh, to head down anyways. I had a friend staying with me. I think it was I think it was Christmas break or one of the breaks uh, during the winter time. And so we decided to leave. It was already dark. It was pretty late. Decided to leave to break up the trip. It was really a bad idea, you know. And you find out that freezing rain causes two problems because it, it did come. The freezing rain was definitely present. And the first problem we find is that the roads are not great. You, you know, you have to deal with sl- slipping possibly. It, it, best case scenario, they're wet. And so it can be a little slick. Worst case scenario, they actually freeze. And then it's you know, a lot more slick and can be dangerous. And the other thing that can be a problem with driving with freezing rain at nighttime is very, very bad visibility. Now, the good news is uh, all our vehicles are equipped with windshield wipers. And ideally, as long as the windshield wipers are working, you know they'll clear the, clear the water off the windshield and you can see. But if you've ever had a time where your windshield wipers stopped working and it's also raining, uh, it can become quite a bad situation very quickly. So we were driving down middle of nowhere, late at night, freezing rain, wintertime in Pennsylvania. It was really a bunch of great things all at once, right? And we were driving down and for some reason, one of the things in the windshield wipers got loose and these windshield wipers smacked together and it busted one of them and it went flying off to the side of the road. And then we had the little steel arm that holds the windshield wiper just grating across the windshield. And it just, it made this beautiful screeching noise and it was slowly starting to etch a a line in this windshield. And I just had the windshield replaced like a week or two before, ironically. And so we're like, what do we do? You know, like it's, it's making this terrible noise. We need the windshield wipers on. What what do we do? I don't know. This is, it was kind of a desperate time. 
And what we ended up doing is I, you know, I was scouring, I had, I had a minivan at the time, I was scouring this minivan. I was like, is there anything in here that we can do to, to kind of fix up the one that was just the metal arm? Thankfully it was the passenger one. So I didn't need it to see at least not as much. Um, and we ended up with a piece, uh, or a pair of underwear is, is the best thing we could come up with that we kind of wrapped around this metal arm to keep it from making this terrible noise and etching in. So we're driving, you know, late at night, freezing rain, completely dark, wintertime in Pennsylvania, uh, to only to cut down two hours on a trip, which the whole thing was pretty dumb, but we're driving and it's this tough situation. And you got, you know, one windshield wiper and then a pair of underwear on the other side. And I've never been tempted in my life to put a pair of underwear on a, on a windshield wiper arm on the front of a car. I mean, it definitely wasn't doing a good job of, of wiping and clearing. I mean, there was a little section that was getting clear, but it was a desperate time. And so we ended up, you know, like, Hey, we desperate measures, you know, that's, that's the solution for desperate times. And so we're going to go and do this. And then we show up at, you know, at this friend's house and it's like, what in the world's going on? Hey, it's like, Hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. Right. So today we're going to look at a story in scripture uh, where King Saul in the Old Testament found himself in a desperate situation. Yet we'll learn that sometimes desperate times do not call for desperate measures. Now, if you don't know, in the Old Testament, uh, Saul was the very first king of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people, the nation that the majority of the Old Testament is based around. Um, as soon as Abraham's descendants become a nation, they're the nation of Israel. And so that's what the whole Old Testament is based around. And Saul was the very first king. For a period of time, they would have various leaders. Then they had people known as judges. And the judges would be raised up to deliver the people from an oppressing nation, turn them back to God. And then people would end up sinning again. So Saul was the first time they actually had a king. And now the people had been warned about having a king. They said, you know, the people wanted to be like the rest of the world. They wanted to have a king like these other nations. They'd been warned like, hey, having a king is not really a good idea. You know, you we should probably just avoid the whole king thing, but they wanted a king super bad. So Samuel, the prophet, he was kind of like the last judge. He was the spiritual leader at the time, probably the most influential person in Israel at this time, went and anointed this guy named Saul as king. Now, Saul was somebody that wasn't really a big deal in the, in the beginning. Um, he was, he was big. He was a very tall guy. They said he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Uh, So he was a big guy, but he wasn't really significant. And God kind of brought him out of significance and got him to be the king. And it was really powerful. And then in 1 Samuel 12, uh, Samuel kind of leaves with this farewell address and is like, you know, if you guys will obey God and the king that we have given you obeys God, everything's going to be all right. Uh, But if you guys leave God, start worshiping other gods, start sinning, these different things. And if your king does, it's not going to be so good. So he kind of gives this farewell address. And then we see this account in King Saul's life. And this is 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read through 15 verses or so. It says that Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So Saul in this text is preparing an army. All right, so there's these people known as the Philistines. The Philistines had set up a a garrison or a troop in the Israelite city of Geba. It was originally supposed to be a a city where the priests would live. And the Philistines had their their troops set up there. And so, you know, Saul's going to go and he's going to go attack these guys and he's going to take the city back. He's going to take this territory back. 
And so a, a little little geography is, is they were going to go and attack it from the northeast and the southwest. They were going to kind of try to sandwich this city. So, you know, Saul goes to Michmash, which was northeast. He's got 2,000 guys up there. And then he sends his son, Jonathan, with 1,000 soldiers kind of the southwest. And so they could sandwich, you know, this Philistine army in between the two of them and get their, their city back. And the Philistines had been this this group that had been a problem for Israel, kind of starting in the in the time of the judges, and then all through Saul and David's day, they were actually the main enemy of Israel. Israel had to deal with with them coming and fighting them, and then Israel would go fight them, and it was kind of a standstill. Like they might take a little bit of territory, but then the other people would take a little bit of territory, and it was just they were kind of evenly matched. But they were the main enemies of Israel. They had um, set up their nation was on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea, so they would have been just to the west of where Israel was when they first went into the Promised Land, and they had emigrated from Greece. Um, at some point earlier in history, and they, you know, they had that coastland there. They were coastal people in the land of Canaan, so they were part of the promised land that the Israel was supposed to possess. They were their neighbors immediately to the west, become a huge problem for them. So this is what happened. So they they got this sandwich thing going on where they're going to attack them from the northeast and the southwest. And then verse three says that Jonathan, that was Saul's son, he defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And then the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now Gilgal was a different location where Saul was going to go and kind of regroup. But you see in this section that they had this great victory. Jonathan went and he defeated the Philistines. But something I find very interesting from this, just a small section here is that it says in verse three, that Jonathan defeated the Philistines. And then in verse four, Saul gets the credit and it says that Saul had defeated the Philistines, but you don't see anywhere in this section of scripture where either of them had sought the favor of the Lord or had given God any credit for this victory. You see many times in David's life later, David's the next King that, you know, he would inquire about the Lord every time he was going to, well, almost every time he was going to do something, he would ask God, hey, God, is this a good idea? Should I do it? God, are you going to, you know, are you going to take care of this? If I go and attack them, are you going to be with me? And then you would glory God and glorify God in it. But we see here that Saul takes the credit. So not only did Saul technically not go in and take, take over, it was his son, but he, he takes the credit and he doesn't give any credit to God. And it's, it's a challenge to me to think in my life or in your life, how often do I take credit for things that maybe I should have given credit to God for, where I had this success or something went well in my life and, and I go and take credit for it and, and I don't attribute any credit to God. Or maybe I work together with somebody else and together we accomplish something, but I maybe take more of the credit than I should. Something to consider. So we have a problem here. So they go and they win this, this, this great battle and then they get really boastful. So they go, Hey, go tell everybody, go tell everybody everywhere that we just, we whooped up on the Philistines. Like we're in charge. We just beat this garrison, Agiba, everything's going great. And so the Israel gets happy and boastful. But what happens is the Philistines, um, the Philistines aren't too thrilled, obviously. I mean, they just, they just got beat. So they're not real happy. So they go. And they get this massive army to retaliate. 
And this is what happens in verse five through seven. It says, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude, more than you could count. So they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And then Saul was still at Gilgal where he was a little bit ago. And all the people followed him trembling. So you see that they, because of this victory, because of their pride and all this stuff's going really good, they kind of made the enemy really mad. And remember, they started with 3,000 guys. There was 2,000 with Saul. There was 1,000 with Jonathan. And then now all of a sudden, the Philistines are like, oh, you want to fight? Sounds good. Uh, We're going to get 30,000, I believe it was chariots, 30,000 chariots, just like just getting started, you know? And, And then they had the horsemen and then they had the troops on top of that. And so Israel is pretty much terrified, which is really, I mean, completely understandable you start with 3000 guys and they, I don't, it doesn't really say as far as I could tell if they maybe lost some guys in that fight at Giba. So at best they had 3000 guys and then now they're outnumbered 10 to one with the chariots alone. That doesn't include the rest of the army. So they, they're terrified and they're, they're running away. All this stuff's going bad. And it's funny because it shows, you know, where they were depending, right? They were depending on themselves when they went to fight Igiba because they had 3000 guys. They had the sandwich effect going on. I mean, they were really, really in good shape. And so they didn't really need God for that victory. They could just go do it themselves. But now all of a sudden that they are, you know, outnumbered 10 to one just in chariots and not to include everybody else, uh, they're really scared. And it's probably because they weren't depending on God. If they were depending on God, they wouldn't have had to have been worried. But instead, they were depending on their own strength. And when they all of a sudden were outnumbered, they had no idea what to do. I know in my life, there are times where it's easy for me to just go and try to do things in my own strength. And then there comes times when you realize that you're not strong enough to do it on your own. And, and you get desperate and you're like, well, if I had I been depending on God the entire time, everything would have been okay. But because I, I was depending on myself, all of a sudden, myself isn't strong enough. So because the Israelites lost this advantage and it, when they and they were they were self-dependent originally they lost this advantage and now they're outnumbered now they don't know what to do and they kind of they kind of panic like uh we're we're in trouble. So Saul is still in this place called Gilgal. He was awaiting Samuel the prophet that was the plan. Samuel had told uh, Saul in 7 days I will be there in Gilgal. I'll offer this sacrifice to, you know, to have God come in and and go with you into battle and and to bless you but I'm going to come do it. Like you have to listen to me and and you got to remember who Samuel was. Samuel was like the prophet. He was the guy. He was one of the most influential people in Israel, probably the most influential person in all of Israel. And there was a time when it says that God did not let any of his words fall to the ground. So Samuel was like, he was confirmed by God in about the greatest way a prophet probably ever was. So here is where we find our problem. So in in, uh, verse eight, first Samuel 13, verse eight, It says that Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul gets a little impatient because all of a sudden, you know, seven days and then Samuel's not there. And patience is both proven and created during times of waiting. Now for us, we're all new covenant believers and patience is a fruit of the spirit. So the the more we have the Holy Spirit and the closer we are to God, we will experience 
um, growth in patience. Now, obviously, Saul did not have this, but as New Testament believers, right, patience is something that God desires to see as fruit in our lives. And so he gets a little impatient, though, which, I mean, it's understandable. You know, there's all this stuff going on, and then Samuel doesn't show up. So I think, I mean, what would you have done? Right? I mean, think about it. it the, they made the, the Philistines really mad. The Philistines whipped up this huge, huge army. And you're, you're the king, and you're there like, hey, it's getting worse. Okay, it's getting worse. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. No, okay, this isn't great. Where's Samuel? Samuel said he was going to come, and and it's the only time really that like God is being brought in because they were going to do the sacrifice, but where's Samuel? So what's Saul supposed to do? Is he supposed to just wait till till there's no one left, till every single member of his army has abandoned him and Samuel still doesn't come? I mean, think about like what would you have done in this situation? I know for me, it's you know, it's not an easy answer, but what Saul ends up doing is, is he disobeys God. Verse nine says that Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And he was fully disobedient to God in doing this because he had not listened to Samuel. And that's where we find that sometimes desperate times do not call for desperate measures. This was certainly a desperate time. Things kept on getting worse for Saul. People were leaving. Samuel wasn't there. But this desperate measure of him stepping in and doing something he was not authorized to do was a sin against God. And the irony is, this is the first time that they're they're asking for God to be involved and asking for God's favor. Uh, favor. And, so, and he does this through disobedience. So trusting God during waiting does not merit disobedience. Saul's faith, his trust, his patience, they were all being tested. And if he, he could have passed the test, but instead he rushed and he sinned against God by doing something that was not lawful for him to do. Verse 10 says, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. We see here that Saul is completely um, unrepentant, really. And I think this is this is such such a picture for our lives of whether or not we truly are repentant when we mess up or are we, do we have this false repentance? You know, true repentance is sorry for what you've done, but false repentance and true, true repentance as well is sorry that you've, you've hurt the heart of God. You've grieved the Holy spirit, but false repentance makes excuses, points fingers and false repentance is the kind where somebody is only sorry they were caught. You know, had Samuel not walked in and been like, Hey, Saul, what's going on? You know, would Saul have ever repented for his disobedience? Probably not if he wouldn't have been called out on it. And we see that, you know, Saul is dealing with this. He's like, I, he's got all these excuses. He's like, Samuel, I mean, geez, Samuel, the people are all running away. Like, what do you expect me to do? The people are all running away. I, I almost have no army left. And not only that, you took too long. You said you'd be here in seven days and you weren't showing up. And then the Philistines, they got this great army together. And the, and, and I had not sought the favor from the Lord. So there's four excuses here. He's like, the people are leaving. You took too long. The Philistines had an army and I had not sought the favor of God. So I had to do it. Like Samuel, you got to understand. And it's like my, my disobedience is justified because of all the, all the stuff that's going on. But this is what Samuel says in verse 13. He says, you have done foolishly. 
you've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord God would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Samuel to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And that is where I'm going to end the story. It's not the end of chapter 13, but I'm going to end it here. You see uh, that Samuel pretty much blows up on Saul and says, hey, uh, you, you would have had a kingdom and a dynasty where your sons would have reigned and everything would have been good. But I can tell by your disobedience that you don't really have a heart after God. And you think like, man, like Samuel, this seems like kind of a an overreaction. Like Samuel, really? Like, you know, is it really that big of a deal? But here's the problem. The king disobeying God sets a standard for the entire nation. If you remember originally when the people wanted a king, Samuel's like, no, you, you really don't want a king. You don't want to be like the rest of the world. The Lord is your king. God is your king of, of, is for Israel. You don't want a man to be in charge. God's your king. But instead the people said, no, we want a king. We want a man to be in charge and not a God to be in charge. But then here's the thing. So if if the king goes and disobeys God, so not only was the king a bad idea to begin with, but he goes and disobeys God when it's convenient, what sort of model does this put forth for the entire nation of people that are looking to him for leadership and guidance? It's a pretty, pretty sobering thought to think about. So, I mean, it really was a, a really, really bad way to disobey God. It really was a big deal. And not only that, it kind of puts forth the idea that you can just get God's favor whenever you want. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I need the favor of God. I mean, it might be disobeying to try to get his favor, which is really ironic, but he's like, yeah, I'm just going to offer up this little sacrifice and then God will come down like my butler to, to take care of things. And, and, you know, I, I don't really care. I don't really have this heart after God and I'm going to do something that's wrong, but you know, he can just come in and just take care of this for me. And, I, you know, do we ever do that with our prayers? I, I find that there's times when it's like, well, Stuff isn't going really good, so I'm just going to kind of offer up this little prayer, this little sacrifice, this little thing to, you know, get God's favor, to take care of something. I haven't really thought about God lately. I haven't really done much for God lately, but, you know, I'm just going to throw this little prayer up, you know, just kind of a little butler thing. It's kind of a sobering thought to think about because I know there's I know there's been times in my life that I do it. I, I try not to do it now. I mean, as I've matured a little bit, but it's still a tendency that I think we all have. And we find from the story that disobedience has consequences. Saul is left in this terrible situation. He's promised his kingdom will depart. He's only got 600 guys now. I mean, he's really, really outnumbered now. Samuel the prophet leaves and is mad at him. I mean, you got that going on. And surely uh, God is displeased because he, Saul disobeyed him. So we see this is the end of this story. And it was really not worth it for Saul to rush and force himself into sin against God instead of waiting. He failed the test. He had been, his faith was being tested. His trust was being tested. Samuel said, I'll be there. And, and, and the, the thing that's so funny is Sam, Samuel shows up like the second that Saul's done. Like if Saul would have just hung out just a little bit longer, it, it, isn't that how it always works? You know, but we need to remember in our lives to value God and uh, obedience to God and integrity in personal integrity and service to him during desperate times and above anything else. And you might say, oh yeah, of course I, I do. And what difference does this whole idea with Saul make enemy? Anyways, well, I find that it can be really easy when we're put in desperate times to maybe 
cut corners. If you're, if you're doing a project or something, all of a sudden you end up behind on a project or, or something like this. And you, you say, oh, well, this doesn't matter that much, or maybe I'll kind of, you know, change things a little bit here or whatever, because we're in a desperate situation. And then you end up sacrificing some integrity without even acknowledging it. One that's kind of not, not maybe not as big of a deal, but probably readily applicable to a lot of us is do you ever speed when you're running late or blow stop signs or red lights? You know, you go and it's like, well, you know, I want my driving to honor God, but as soon as I'm late, I'm kind of in this tough spot. Well, I'm just going to kind of squeeze and, and kind of do whatever I want because, because I'm desperate. Just some things to think about. I'm sure there's many more examples, but none of us are beyond this tendency to justify doing the wrong thing when we're desperate. So as believers, we need to be careful to honor God with our victories and humbly obey his word, even during desperate and difficult times. For sometimes desperate times do not call for desperate measures. As Christians, our obedience to God is paramount and should be the primary influence in our decision-making. In even the most difficult situations, they do not merit our disobedience to God. Consider how Jesus Christ, even at the most difficult time in his life, when he was wrestling with the will of God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he humbly stated, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus could have called an entire legion of angels to deliver him from his captors, and yet he submitted himself to the will of the Father instead of getting himself out of this difficult situation. So the next time a trial or difficult situation in your life tempts you to dishonor God by taking shortcuts or disobeying his word, consider these repercussions that Saul faced in the example that Jesus Christ has laid before us in overcoming temptation. Go to the throne of grace for help in your time of need, for there's no temptation that we face that Christ did not. It's through him alone that we can conquer and live a God-honoring life even in the midst of desperate times. So with that, I thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Without Exception podcast. I pray that this episode has been edifying to you and that it is something you can put into practice in your own life. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and share it with others. If you were listening on Apple, I would love it if you would leave a review. It helps with the exposure of the show. That said, I pray you have an awesome week. And until I see you next time, Let's live out our faith each day without exception.